Luke chapter number 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. Luke chapter 4, verse number 1. The Bible says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. When they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. And He brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. When the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you tonight. I thank you for your presence. I thank you, Lord, for the encouragement you give us. Thank you for the truth of your word. I pray, Father, that tonight you would do a work in my heart. Begin in me, Father. And Lord, it may be that under the sound of my voice, I believe by providence there are folks that are no doubt here tonight to hear this word. And I pray that your spirit would minister to them as he does to me. And Lord, that ourselves, we ourselves would draw nigh unto you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight on this thought, answering the adversary. Peter makes it very clear that you and I as believers have an adversary. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, not your mama's adversary, your daddy's adversary, your preacher's adversary, your spouse's adversary, he says, your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Get it through your head tonight that the devil is after you. Get it through your head tonight that the devil, I don't know, we may be off timing. Is that it? Is that what's happened? We need to get our timing checked. Get it through your head. The devil's after you. He's after your life. He's after your family. He's after your home. He's after your testimony. He's after you tonight. And any person that is willfully blind to that fact is choosing to ignore the clear testimony of Scripture. The devil has a desire to disrupt, destroy, and derail the walk that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter advocates that we be sober and vigilant. In other words, pay attention and watch what you're doing. That's what it means. Sober, vigilant. Pay attention and watch what you're doing. And I believe in Luke chapter number 4, there are so many truths. And I, I found this. When I first started preaching, I had to search for stuff to preach. And the longer I preach, the more I have to weed out of my sermon so I can get you out of here before midnight. There's so much in this passage that we could talk about. 
We could talk about the power of the Word of God in repelling the assault of Satan. We could talk about the testimony of the Lord Jesus in leaning upon the will of His Father. When this is very God robed in the flesh, He could have spoke Satan out of existence, but He chose not to do that. Uh, We could talk about, and we will say a little bit about the, the tactics of the devil and how he approaches unto us. But what I want you to think about with me for a few moments is this simple thought. When the devil comes to you, now I'm aware it's probably not the devil himself, but it's his forces, it's his force, it's his influence, the world, the flesh, the devil. When when the devil approaches unto you and tempts you, and he will tempt you, if he would tempt Jesus, he'll tempt you. When he does, there's three things that you ought to reply to him. Now, before I give you those, I want you to notice when it is that the devil likes to approach unto us. It's interesting that Peter says he walked about seeking whom he may devour. That implies two things to me. One, it ain't everybody that he can devour. There's certain people that he is interested in. And there's certain people that he's targeting. But it does tell me this, though it ain't everybody he can devour, it is somebody he can devour. So the question is not, can he do damage? The question is not, can he devour? He can devour our homes and lives and churches and testimony. The question is, what separates those two groups of people? How can you be part of those that he cannot devour or will not devour? I believe there are certain times in our life when the devil approaches us. And it's not what you'd think. You'd imagine, and, and, and there is some truth to this, you'd imagine the devil would come to you when you're living in sin. And there is a sense in which that is true. We can lay ourselves open to the attack of Satan if we embrace sin, invite sin into our lives. But I don't believe the Lord Jesus ever committed a single sin. And whether I believed it or not, it'd still be true because the Bible teaches it that he was separate from sinners, that he did no sin, he knew no sin, and in him was no sin. Sin was not the reason that Satan had approached unto the Lord Jesus. The fact is, in the Lord Jesus, we find the perfect example. And in this passage, I believe we find three things that, 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 uh, that, that perks the devil's ears up, that sets his radar to spinning in your life and mine. Notice them with me before we get in the preaching. Look at verse number one. The Bible says, Jesus, what's the next phrase? Being full of the Holy Ghost. Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led, how? By the Spirit into the wilderness. Let me say number one to you tonight, that the devil will approach you when you're walking with God. It is true that if we allow sin in our lives, we lay ourselves open easily to his attack. But I would just put this before you tonight. Most of the time, if we're living in sin, he don't have to approach us. We'll approach him. Most of the time, if we got sin in our lives, if we're living in abject rebellion against God, He doesn't have to tempt us. We're already following after sin and unrighteousness. We might say it this way, He don't have to come get us, because He's already got us. Now, the importance of this truth is not found merely in that statement that I just made, but it is in the other side of the coin. 
Don't think just because you're living for God, going to church, reading your Bible, praying, walking with God, that that somehow gives you a pass from Satan's attack. In fact, the opposite is true. You're the person he's going to seek to destroy the most because you are the biggest threat to him. One of the things I never understood about ancient warfare was the rules of combat that they'd have. Uh, they would oftentimes had a gentleman's agreement that they wouldn't go after each other's officers because it was supposed to be dishonorable to try to kill another officer. You were supposed to go after the soldiers. You know what happened when people started ignoring that? The folks that held to the agreement started losing battles. Amen? That's part of the reason warfare changed the way it did, particularly in the Civil War. You had uh, roving and raiding bands, people like Bloody Bill Quantrell, and Taylor gives a history lesson on all these guys. Uh, many of them, a lot of them turned to outlaws after the war. If you lived in Missouri, you'd probably do the same. But uh, these guys fought warfare in a different way. They didn't necessarily respect the rules of engagement. And you find this to be true. When a person won't play by rules, they often have an upper hand. I got news for you. The devil ain't going to play by rules. He's not going to look at you and say, well, now would be a bad time for them. I'll just leave them alone. He's not going to look at you and say, well, this is an important decision. This could ruin his life. I better leave him alone. Rather, he's going to find the time when you're walking with God, when you're doing well, when you're doing what's right, that's when he's going to try to attack you. It was at a time when the Lord Jesus was full of the Holy Ghost. And you might say, well, preacher, he's the Son of God. He was always full of the Holy Ghost. I agree with you, but my King James Bible makes a point to tell me that he was full of the Holy Ghost. That tells me that God's trying to draw attention to this fact and trying to denote that even when he's in the will of God, doing the work of God, walking with God, filled with the Spirit of God, the devil still pursued him. And don't think just because you do right that the devil's going to let you off. Because the fact is, when you start to live right, that's what riles him. I believe when we're walking with God, let me give you a second thing. The Bible says in verse number 1 at the end of it, he was led by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness. The wilderness. The devil's going to try to attack you when you're walking with God, but he's also going to try to attack you when you're in the wilderness. Now, there are two truths, I think, that are important here. One is that there are times in life when we enter a wilderness season. A wilderness is a place where life cannot be sustained. It is a desolate place. It is a barren place. It is a fruitless place very often. And I believe that sometimes, if you've walked this earth long enough, you know this to be true, you go through wilderness seasons of life. You'll go through times when everything's going right. And then mark her down, friend, you'll go through times when everything's going wrong. Times when it seems like nothing's working out, when you can't make anything happen. And oftentimes during those seasons, we start to get a little jumpy and a little nervous. And the devil knows that's a prime opportunity to enter into our life and to try to lead us astray. Then I'd also remind you that the wilderness is a place of isolation. And the devil will often try to get us alone in order to trip us up. You think about Elijah in the Old Testament, mighty man of God. In fact, Elijah in the Jewish mind was associated with the power of God. He was not a message-preaching prophet. He was a miracle-working prophet. The messages that God gave him were connected to the miracles that God was working through him. He was a mighty man of God. 
But there he is alone in the wilderness, sitting up under a juniper tree and saying, Lord, just take my life. And you know what the reason he gave was? He said, I and I alone am left of all of the prophets. Now, that wasn't the truth. Listen, the devil, if he can make you believe you're alone, he will make you believe you're alone. He will make you believe that you're alone. The Lord reminds Elijah, you ain't alone. Number one, Elijah, you ain't that important. I wouldn't let everything rise or fall on you. Sometimes what we need in those pity party situations is a little humbling. To be reminded that we ain't the first, we ain't the last. God's not done give up messed up. God has not failed with us. God's never failed anybody. But we also need to be reminded that God's got people He's using. And God's got people that are doing the work, that are seeing the fruit, that are living for the Lord, that are being encouraged in the Lord. But if He can get you in a wilderness situation where nothing's working, where you feel alone, where you feel frustrated, where you feel like nothing's happening, then that's the place the devil will try to come to you and say, what are you hanging out in the wilderness for? Why don't you go someplace more fruitful? Why don't you do something more fruitful? He'll get you in a wilderness place. But then notice what it says, verse 2. The Bible says, in the wilderness being tempted, 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days, he did eat nothing. When they were ended, he afterward hungered. Now, I know a bunch of East Tennessee Baptists can't identify with this verse. But the Bible, you could have laughed there. Me and I laughed about it. The Lord Jesus, though He was the Son of God and God the Son, though He is God in the flesh, He he, he is God in the flesh. You know, He still to this day is God in the flesh, but He's in glorified flesh. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Not there was one mediator between God and man, and that was the man. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And now He's in glorified flesh, after his resurrection, but at this time he was in flesh, similar to your flesh and mine. I don't know what happens to you when you don't eat. What happens to me is I get hungry. And you stay hungry long enough, you're going to grow weary. The devil will come to you when you're weary. Listen, if you live for the Lord and serve God, there's going to be times you get tired, spiritually fatigued. There's going to be times when the drain gets so much that you feel as though you're getting low on spiritual capital. And during those times, that's just when the devil likes to come to you and likes to say, you can't go on. You can't go on. I think it's funny what the Lord did with Elijah. Uh, Elijah sits down under that juniper tree and says, Lord, just kill me. And the Lord sends an angel to kick Elijah and wake him up and says, Elijah, eat something. And you know what he says? The journey... Is too great for thee. Now, we could draw a lot of analogies about the journey of life, but the journey that he was talking about was the journey out of that wilderness to Sinai to stand at the very mountain that God gave His law on to get in the presence of God, to hear the plan of God. And what God was saying to Elijah is, Elijah, I got a plan for you. I got somewhere I'm taking you, but don't give out on me yet. Take a little food, get a little strength, Because there's a journey in front of you. Listen, I wish I could tell you that your problems are all going to go away tomorrow. I wish I could tell you that everything's going to change before the week's out. I don't know. But I know God's taking you somewhere. Because God don't lead anybody nowhere. 
You may be headed into a wilderness. You may have been in a wilderness. You may be ready to pile up under the first juniper tree you can find and give up on God. But sometimes what we need is a little encouragement, a little spiritual food from the Lord, a little nourishment so that we can go on. The fact is, the journey's too great for thee and me and anyone else. Without the Lord's encouragement and help, we're never going to be able to go on. But don't think just because you're weary that God's abandoned you. It's interesting that Elijah says, I'm alone. But he wasn't alone. He was praying to a God that was ever-present, and God had an angel there to minister to him. He says, I'm alone and I'm weary. God says, you're not alone, and I got food for you. Eat it and you'll feel better. You might say that Elijah was hangry. You know what hangry is? Some of you women know what hangry is. He was hangry. Or, or oppressed, maybe. I don't know. Hang-pressed. I don't know what you call it. And he's ready to give up. The devil will come to you when you're weary, when you're tired. By the way, let me give you a word of encouragement and a word of counsel. This is part of the reason when you get sick. Anybody been sick this year? you got to watch when you get sick. Because you get weak in body. And the devil will use those opportunities to try to discourage you. He'll come up beside you and start whispering stuff in your ear. And it won't be with the audible voice, but he'll whisper it into the darkest places of your hearts, tell you to give up, quit on God, God's forgot about you, it ain't never going to get no better. He's a liar from the beginning. And he's the father of lies. And a good way to tell what the truth is, is find whatever the devil's telling you and believe the opposite. Because that's probably the truth. I see when he comes to you, and he comes to Jesus... And there's three things he asks of him. The devil always asks of you. Uh, listen, he won't ever just come and give you without expecting anything. That's grace. God gave to us his son without asking anything in return. That's grace. The devil always does the opposite. He's always going to ask something from you and not give you anything in return. So he comes to Jesus and there's three exchanges. Notice the first one with me, verse number three. The devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Two things I want you to notice about this. One, the thing that the devil tempted him with was not wrong intrinsically. Uh, if we didn't believe in breaking bread, we wouldn't, then if breaking bread's wrong, we every one of us need to be on the altar tonight. Amen? If it's sin to eat, then every one of us needs to repent because we collectively as a church broke God's law if it's a sin to eat. The fact is, it's not wrong to eat bread. Uh, there would be times later, in fact, I would say this for Jesus, it was not wrong to supernaturally produce bread. Later on, he'd do that very thing. He would break bread with his disciples, and before the 5,000, he would miraculously, supernaturally break the bread and provide for the needs of others. What the devil tempted him with was not intrinsically wrong. But notice something the Lord says. He says, man shall not live by bread. Notice this next phrase. Alone. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The devil always has something in the fine print. You ever notice that? He rarely comes to you and tells you what his plan is. He'll come to you with an offer. He'll come to you with a request. But there in the fine print, you'll find the details. The Lord Jesus had for 40 days been fasting, spending time in prayer with his heavenly Father. 
And through that exercise, there was an intimacy of fellowship. And now what the devil's saying is not, here's some bread, enjoy. He's saying, why don't you give up this fast and eat bread instead? He's saying, you're going to have to choose between the two. And the Lord says, if I have to choose bread alone or the Bible alone, I'm going to choose the Bible. The devil will always try to put you in a sit. Listen, God can bless you in a way to give you things that are not intrinsically wrong and give them to you in a holy way. Uh, nothing wrong with having a nice car, nothing wrong with having a nice house, nothing wrong with uh, having, you know, a, a, a nice uh, income, nothing wrong with having any of those things. If you got hobbies, if you if you like golf, and if you're rich enough for golf, then God bless you. Amen? And, uh, you know, if, if He gives you a new pair of golf clubs, by all means. He gives you a new hunting rifle, by all means. God can give you those things without you having to choose between His will and that matter. But every time the devil gives you something, There's always going to be a choice. And there was a choice for the Lord Jesus. It wasn't bread and the Bible. It was bread or the Bible. Because the devil always has as an end to draw you away from God. And as such, the Lord Jesus answers him and says, If i got to choose, then I'll choose what God has for me. Here's the first thing you need to remind the devil of and remind yourself of when he comes to you to tempt you. That God's treasures are priceless. That what God gives you is far superior to what the world, the flesh, and the devil could ever give you. The devil's always going to make it seem like a good exchange. But the question you got to ask is, what am I giving up for it? God can give it to you in a way where you don't have to give up anything except what's bad for you. But the devil will always ask you in the fine print to give up something that relates to your spiritual well-being. And you need to remind yourself that at the end of the day, the things that God gives us, and I jotted it down like this, the Lord Jesus reminded the devil that what God gives us is better than what the devil gives us. The Lord will only give you what you need, but He'll give you everything you need. Well, let me back up. What I said was not true. The Lord won't only give you what you need. He'll a lot of times give you things that you want, but He'll never give you anything that is harmful in your life. Listen, there's been a lot of things God's done for me that I didn't need. But He's good to me. And I bet if you know Him, He's good to you too. But the things that the Lord will give us, He will always give us what we need in life. We may not know what our needs are, but the Bible reminds us that our Heavenly Father knows what we have need of before we even ask. And we can content ourselves with what the Lord gives us. Anything the world can give you pales in comparison of value to the spiritual and eternal things and scriptural things that God gives. The devil will always ask you to give up something spiritual to get something temporal. The Lord can bless you temporally and still bless you spiritually, but you better read that fine print and remind yourself in those moments of the wilderness and walking with God and being weary at the same time when there's much at risk, you better remind yourself that God's treasures, they're priceless. They're priceless. Your walk with God, it's priceless. The prayer closet, it's priceless. Your relationship with the Word of God, it's priceless. Worship, it's priceless. And to give those things up for something as common as the things that the devil gives us is great folly. Look at the next exchange. Verse 5. The devil taking him up 
into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, you can believe what you want about this, but I believe what it means is that somehow supernaturally the devil displayed all of the kingdoms throughout all of time, all of the authority, all of the glory, all of the influence, and somehow compacted those things into one image that he set before the eyes of the Lord Jesus. The devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. You've heard me say this probably a dozen times when I preached on this passage. I probably preached on this passage two dozen times. But the things that the devil tempts him with are not intrinsically wrong. And in fact, God has orchestrated the arc of human history to culminate in a kingdom that Daniel describes as being the kingdom that supersedes the Antichrist kingdom. And we call it the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, The Bible says that Christ is going to sit on the throne of his father David and for a thousand years he will rule with a rod of iron. The Bible describes in the book of Isaiah how all the kings of the earth will come and pay tribute unto him. During that time, the earth ain't going to just quit existing. People ain't going to quit living. Kingdoms ain't going to quit existing. But they're all going to live in subjection and in reverence and in obeisance to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. There wasn't nothing wrong with the Lord Jesus having all authority. The Bible says that all power is delivered unto the Son. Wasn't anything wrong with worshiping the Lord Jesus because the Bible says that He is King of kings, Lord of lords. But what was the devil trying to get Him to do? In that moment, the devil, and in this moment, has jurisdiction and authority and governance over the kingdoms of this world. The Bible calls Him the God of this world. And he goes to the Lord Jesus and he says, If you will worship me now, then I will give you these kingdoms now. And I wrote this down. Not only are God's treasures priceless, but when the devil comes to us and tries to tempt us, very often with things that are not intrinsically wrong, we need to remind him that God's timing is perfect. What he was saying is, Jesus, why don't you just leapfrog God's timing? He's going to one day deliver these kingdoms up to you. Now, remember, the Lord Jesus is omniscient. He knows every fact in existence except the time of His return. That's the only thing that the Son doesn't know that the Father knows. So He knew, He understood that Calvary was coming His way. He understood the church age. He understood the tribulation period. He understood how long it would be to some degree until He would sit upon the throne of David. And the devil's saying, why wait all that time when I can give you now what is truly owed to you? And what he tempted him with was truly owed to him. Isn't it funny how the devil come to us and he'll begin to stroke our ego and he'll begin to say, you know, you're not getting what you deserve. You know, uh, people aren't treating you the right way. You know, everybody else enjoying this and that in life. You're not getting to enjoy it. And the devil will come along and say, you know, you're owed more than this. You know that you're, you're better than this. You deserve better than this. I would be very suspicious of anybody that said we deserved anything. What we deserve is to die and go to hell. 
We don't deserve nothing. Anybody comes to you and says, hey, you deserve this. They probably don't know you very well. We don't deserve nothing. The devil comes and says, you know, you deserve this. And the Lord responds by reminding him who it is that is the unchallenged, authoritative, sovereign God of glory. He says, you know, you may have these kingdoms right now. You may be able to give them to me now, but you're just a steward, Satan. These kingdoms don't belong to you. They belong to my heavenly Father. I can take them from you for a short while, but when I get them from Him, I'll have them for good. The devil will often, when he can't get you to take what he wants to give you, as opposed to what God wants to give you in life, he'll oftentimes move on to try to get you to jump ahead of God's timing and take what God wants to give you, but take it on your timing instead of on God's timing. One of the things we learn through the Word of God is that timing is a matter of providence and responsibility just as our actions and our behavior is. There are a lot of things that if we try to take them when it's the wrong time in life. I think about in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Achan. Do you remember Achan? Achan was the man that whenever God uh, threw down the walls of Jericho, God had commanded the Israelites. He said, don't take anything. All the spoil is accursed. It belongs to me. It doesn't belong to you. And Achan, as they were moving through the city and clearing the rooms and sort of uh, closing the books, so to speak, on the conquest of Jericho, he looks and he sees a wedge of silver, some gold, and a Babylonian garment. The Bible says he looked on those things. We've got to be careful what we look at. If we look at something long enough, we're going to lust after it. If we lust after it long enough, we're eventually going to grow to love it and to worship it. And that's what happened to him. He looked at that thing. And he made a decision. He said to himself, God said I couldn't have it, but I don't care what God thinks. I'm going to take it to myself. You know what I find to be interesting? The Lord, the, 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 the precedent, the premise under which everything was accursed was not that there was something wrong with their gold, their silver, or their Babylonian garment. What God said is, it's mine. And if you take something that's mine, you're a thief. When we try to take the reins and jurisdiction of our own life, we're a thief. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Paul said, you are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. I got news for you, this life ain't yours. People say, it's my life, I'll live it how I want. Not if you're a believer. Not if you're a Christian. You've been bought and paid for. And for us to try to take that thing to ourselves... We're taking something that belongs only to the Lord. It's not necessarily that it's wrong in and of itself, but we're taking it to ourselves. After that, the Bible says that uh, he took it, he brought it home, he hid it under his tent floor, he buried it. A lot of good it was doing him, right? A lot of good it was doing him. Hey, the things that we try to steal out of the hands of God we'll never get to enjoy anyway. He buries it under his tent floor. Well, God knows where it's at. Because guess what? I don't know if you know this, God knows where everything is. You may not be able to find your keys, but God knows where they are. And so, Joshua sends a small troop of of soldiers out to conquer a little city named Ai. It was so big it only had two letters in its name. Didn't nobody live in Ai. 
And uh, they thought, this ain't going to be no big deal. We'll just go, we'll whoop them, we'll come back for supper time. And so they go, and the power of God routed the Jewish troops. And God gave victory to the inhabitants of Ai that day. Over 30 men died, didn't have to die. It was an absurd loss. They come back. Joshua's mad. He's mad at God because things didn't go the way he expected. And so he says, Lord, why have you done this? You've, you've brought us out here. Joshua falls on his face and he prays before God. He says, why have you done this? You brought us out of Egypt. You brought us out here in the wilderness. You threw down the wall of Jericho. Uh, then you lead us over to fight these people of Ai. And you let us get whooped like that. God, what are you doing? People are going to start talking. They're going to start saying God has abandoned them. And God says, hush, Joshua. Get up off your face. There's sin in the camp. Quit praying to me and go get your house in order wonder how many times, if we really were bold enough to hear the voice of God, God would say, quit praying to me and go get your house in order. Joshua says, okay, Lord. So he goes and he begins to take the nation, or the, uh, the, the tribes by lot and casting lots upon them. And it begins to narrow down to a certain tribe and then down to a certain family and on and on and on and on. God just keeps upping the intensity of the microscope until there's one man left. And it's Achan. And they pronounce judgment upon Achan. His entire family is stoned to death. Even his cattle are stoned to death. Only then can Israel enjoy the favor of God again because they expelled and extinguished and annihilated the sin in their camp. Now here's the great irony. In the very next chapter, they go back to Ai. They conquer the city. You know what the Lord says to them? The Lord says, everything that's in this city is yours. Take anything that you want. Now, don't look for this in your Bible. You'll tear your concordance all to pieces. But if I know God the way I think I know Him, and if I know my Bible the way I think I know my Bible, it would not surprise me if in one of those tents sat a piece of gold, a silver wedge, and a Babylonian garment. What did Achan try to do? One that what he wanted was bad in and of itself, but he did not have the authority, the jurisdiction, to take it unto himself. And because of it, he perished. When if he had just been willing to trust God and wait, God would have allowed him to have that and so much more. I remember growing up, I had a sister and a brother. I still have them. I don't talk about them a lot. But my sister's tall. She's always been tall. She's like seven foot tall or something. She never did this to me, though. Me and my brother were about the same height. And I remember being a kid. And times that my brother would want to taunt me, he would, if there was something I wanted when I was real little bitty and short, he'd hold it up. And you'd do that thing where you'd jump and try to get at it. That's why I'm the way I am, is I was treated that way growing up. That's how we think God is sometimes. We think He's just dangling things out in front of us, toying with us trying to get our attention or, 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 or trying to annoy us. But the fact is, God's timing is perfect in all things. And when God gives to us what God gives to us in His timing, it's perfect. It's perfect. I want to show you one more thing and I'm done tonight. Verse 9. The Bible says, He brought him to Jerusalem, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over thee to keep thee. 
and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. This quote that's given by Satan is from the 91st Psalm. And I've told you this before, but as is logical, this quote from the 91st Psalm does not apply to just any and everybody. If you were to decide that you wanted to be real spiritual and climb up on the roof and jump off and angels bear you up, I got bad news for you. It would not work out very well. Maybe you'd luck out and land on one of us fat folks, but except that happens, you're probably going to die. The angels are under no obligation to bear you up. But the 91st Psalm was a messianic psalm, meaning that it spoke particularly and prophetically about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, this prophecy that's given related to the fact that the Lord Jesus was not going to die when many, uh, when any of the mobs that crowded around him tried to take his life. He wasn't going to die. And, and over and over again, we see this in the Gospels. We see instances where a crowd of people says, all right, let's kill him. And they start trying to shove him towards a, a, a cliff and push him off. And the Bible just miraculously says he just went through them and was gone. Time and time again, you can see the devil tried to do this early on in the life of Jesus Whenever Herod commanded for all of the Hebrew children to be slain, all the boys under two years old, the devil was always trying to kill the Lord Jesus. He was always trying to short-circuit the plan of God. But God had already foreordained that the Lord Jesus was not going to die by the hands of one of these mobs or by the hand of Herod. He was going to die on the cross of Calvary. He was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He said, "...for this hour came I into the world." He said, the Bible says he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. He was going to the cross. Now, there's a lot of reasons for the cross of Calvary. But one of the chief reasons is that it manifests and displays who Jesus is. You remember the Roman soldier, and I don't think that's by accident, I think that's by providence that a Roman soldier made this statement because he was a representative of Rome. Rome, uh, in many ways, was representative of the Gentile world. And at the cross, whenever the, the sky darkened, whenever the earth shook, the Bible says that there was a Roman soldier that looked up at Jesus and said, Truly, this man is the Son of God. Part of the purpose of the cross was to evidence the deity of the Lord Jesus. Now think about what Satan is asking of Christ. He's saying, you know, you don't have to go to the cross to prove who you are. You could go to the temple, jump off the temple, and literally the legions of angels would come and bear you up. And all these naysayers out here that are saying that you're just a wine-bibber and a glutton and, and born of fornication and a charlatan, you'd prove them wrong. And it would accomplish the same end, I'd imagine Satan said. If God's just trying to show you're His Son, this would show you're His Son. Instead of doing it God's way, Jesus, why don't you do it your way? And the Lord Jesus answers him and says, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, a lot of times, I think, maybe it's just the way I've read it, but there's a tendency, I think, to read that as though the Lord Jesus is rebuking Satan. 
When he says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. As though he's saying, you're tempting the Lord thy God. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's reminding him that it's commanded of God that we don't tempt the Lord thy God. How did they tempt the Lord thy God in the Bible? All through the Old Testament, the Bible says that the children of Israel tempted the Lord through their bickering, through their complaining, through their, and this is the main thing, listen now, through their unbelief. God wanted to bring them into Canaan, and He was going to do it by their faith in Him. He was going to bring them in and slay the giants and extinguish the armies. But there at Kadesh Barnea, when they see the giants, when they see the, the foes, the Bible says that they disbelieved. They had unbelief in their heart. And they came back and they said, we can't do this the way God wants us to do this. I think that one of the things we have to remind ourselves and the devil of, when the devil comes and begins to tempt us, is that God's treatment of us is providential. And I wrote this down. God's treasures are priceless. What He gives us is better than what the devil can give us. God's timing is perfect. When He gives it to us is when it needs to be given to us and at no other time. And God's treatment is providential. How He gives it to us is the only and best way for us to receive it for our good and His glory. It's amazing when you think of all that God does. God is not limited in any way. I think about Balaam in the Old Testament. God's trying to get Balaam's attention. And he can't get it any other way. So he opens the mouth of Balaam's donkey to rebuke him. You think about what God did at Jericho. God has a thousand ways He could have conquered Jericho later on. When the Assyrians would march against the walls of Jerusalem, the angel of death would sweep over the Assyrian army and 185,000 were slain in a night. But instead, God says, Joshua, I want you to march around the city. And on the seventh day, at the seventh cry, the walls are going to tumble. How much Bible do we have to read to realize that God knows what He's doing? That God can do anything He chooses, any way that He chooses. That He's not limited by anything except our unbelief. And that the way He does things is the right way for Him to be done. You know, confession's good for the soul, the old uh, axiom goes. And, and, and let me just say this. I, like most people, have a tendency to want to do God's work my way. I know God's will is best. Sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking He needs our help a little in figuring things out. It's a good thing that Joshua wasn't the one running the military campaign against Jericho because literally forces five times the size of Israel's had broken like water against that wall. And there was a very crucial moment a few days before they marched around that city the Bible tells us that Joshua was out by himself away from the camp and he was praying. The Bible says that in that moment that the angel of the Lord... Now, you know the angel of the Lord usually in the Old Testament is what we call a theophany or a Christophany. It's a pre-Bethlehem incarnation of the Lord. That the angel of the Lord appeared unto him. And this startles Joshua. He's in enemy territory. 
And so he says something very profound. I think it's, it very succinctly sums up what is often our attitude towards the Lord's working in our life. You know what he says? He says, are you for us or for our enemies? Now, he doesn't know this is God in the flesh talking to him. And so he asks this very, very reasonable question. But the Lord answers him in a fascinating way. You know what the Lord says? He says, nay. Now, I'm not an English major. People ask you sometimes, preachers will get together and they'll say, do you know any Hebrew or Greek? You know, because that's a big deal, apparently. Uh, I, my Bible's not in Hebrew or Greek, it's in English. And it's perfect. Amen. But I always tell them, listen, I'm just, I'm just trying to get my hands around English. Once I get that took care of, then we'll talk about something else. And uh, I'm not an English major. But I know that typically, and my wife does this sometimes, I will say, honey, do you want Wendy's or do you want Burger King? And she'll say, yes. <laughs> and I don't find that funny. Right? You ladies, I know you find that funny. I understand that. But when you're driving down the road and you have a decision to make, it's not that cute. Wendy's or Burger King? Yes. That's not even an answer. If she said no, maybe I'd understand it. But she says yes. When you give someone an option and they answer with yes or no, what does that say? Joshua says, are you for me or are you for our enemies? And the Lord says, nope. And then he says this, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. He wasn't saying something about Joshua when he said no. He was saying something about himself. Joshua saying, as we all do, Lord, are you going to help me or are you going to get out of my way? Are you for me or are you for my enemies? And the Lord says, Joshua... I'm not for you or against you. I'm above you. That's not your army down there. That's my army down there. That's not your battle over there, Joshua. That's my battle over there. And you, if you know your place, are merely a servant of mine. You have a role, a responsibility, a job to do. I'm the one leading this army. I'm glad the Lord took control at Jericho because the walls would have never came down otherwise. And in a million years, in a million meetings of a million minds, no one would have ever suggested marching around the city. But God's way is very rarely your way or my way. God's way, though, is always the right way. The devil was trying to say, you can accomplish the same thing in your own strength, in your own way. And the Lord reminds him, I'm not here to do my will. I'm here to do the will of Him that sent me. I'm not here to get this thing done my way, Satan. Getting things done the right way means me getting things done His way. Now, let me tell you something. There might be something that the devil's tempting you with, but if you can't, if you can't get it God's way, then I promise you don't need it or want it. There's going to be times the devil's going to try to come to you, lure you, tempt you, discourage you, frustrate you, and in those moments when the adversary comes, just remember these three simple things. God's treasures are priceless. There's nothing the devil can give you that's worth more than what God gives you. There's no, there's, there's no loaf of bread, no loaf of bread worth more than the bread of life.
Don't ever forget that God's timing is perfect. If He can't get you to go after something that God doesn't want you to have, He'll often get you to go after something God does want you to have, but in your timing. And just like Achan, you can make shipwreck of your life by not waiting on God's timing. And sometimes, if He can't sway you away from God's treasures or timing, He'll try to convince you that you have a better way than God does. But the truth of the matter is, God's way is always right. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But guess what? Isaiah said they're above our ways. They're above our thoughts. They're lofty. Can I put it real simple? They're better. What God has for you is better than what you have for yourself or what the devil has for you. When God wants you to have it, it'll be better than getting it on your terms and on your time. And God's way is better than your way. Stick with God. And be content. Godliness, Paul said, with contentment is great gain. Content yourself with the Lord Jesus. And God will bless you far above what you could ever imagine, fathom, or desire.